Well, you can hide things from your friends, but not from your family. This is a very personal message for you tonight, because it's about you and your dad. And if you have an insight, even a small insight from the next half an hour or so, of what God means to you, and you mean to your Father God, then that'll be great. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, it's just amazing that we can address you, the creator of the universe, as our Father, our Abba. Help us to appreciate this evening your personal connection, your love for us as individuals and corporately together as your church. And wherever we're at this evening, help us to realize that you care that you have the answers, and that you're there for us as our dad, our Abba Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, uh, we're going to continue studies this evening uh, in life issues. We've been looking at various things, uh, looking particularly in the book of Proverbs, and we're going to continue this evening on the subject of dealing with despair. Now, Maybe not the most stimulating of topics in the sense of being inspirational, but let's face it, despair is something that's very real. It affected people in the Bible, it affected Jesus as the Son of God, and it affects us in a number of different ways. So we're going to look at a couple of passages in Matthew. If you've got a Bible, then by all means turn up your Bible, but it should be on the screen as well behind us. The first passage is in Matthew chapter 6, and reading from verse 25. And in the NIV, it's headed up, do not worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? Indeed. See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will He not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then over in Matthew 11, and reading from verse 28, these are the words of Jesus again. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Sometimes we don't realize that when we talk about despair or about worry, we're really talking about a spectrum of differing conditions. And it's important as we look at Scripture that we understand what facet of the spectrum is being addressed by the Lord Jesus. You can have anxiety, which can be, in some instances, self-made or needless, working through to very real worries, working through to despair, and then beyond that there is depression, which includes depressive illness. Some of these facets and conditions are very, very serious. And therefore, before I say anything about these Scriptures, I want to set out a couple of caveats. The first is that I totally respect the individuality of the application of these conditions to each person that experiences them. So, you will get no trite or easy solutions, but there are answers, and these answers come from God, and that's what we're going to search for this evening. The second thing is that I'm a lawyer. I'm not a medic. I'm not a psychiatrist, and in certain facets, there are specialist uh, analysis and understanding that's required in order to assist particular individuals who are being oppressed by things on the more extreme uh, level of the spectrum that I just described. But hear this. It's clear that a lot of us, 5 to 10% of the population, will be experiencing some form of depression at this time. That's a lot of people. And furthermore, that at least 20% of us at some stage in our life will be hit by the challenge of depression. So this is a very real-life subject, but there are no pat answers, and I want you to be clear about that before I see anything else. Now, in Matthew 6, in the first passage that we read out, Jesus was addressing the spectrum end, which is that of anxious worry. And there are three key points that come out from the passage where um, Jesus seeks to put that type of worry in perspective. Uh, the first point is in verses 25 to 27, he says or makes clear that God gave us life. Therefore, if He's given us life, He's going to provide us with the means to have life now and life in its fullness and its abundance. Someone who clearly wasn't uh, an exact mathematician came up with this survey information, which may help. In terms of worry, 40% of things that we worry about never happen. 30% have already happened. 10% of worry affects our health. And then 10% is about situations we can't change. So if I top that up, that's 10% left for the ladies. Uh, but apart from that, it's clear that worry is something that divides the mind. That's the exact literal meaning of the words here in this passage. It splits us down the middle. And I don't know about you, but if I was split down the middle, then I wouldn't be able to do very much at all. So God gave us life. Therefore, we should trust in Him to give us what we need to live our lives to the full with purpose and free of needless anxiety. The second point is that Jesus says this, this, this worrying 
this anxiety achieves nothing. We, we look to the example of Jesus Himself, and in Hebrews 12, we read the words, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He had a lot to worry about, but yet He made the decision not to worry because there was no point. He was set on a course. That course would change your life and would change mine. And if you're in any doubt tonight about how you get into connection with your Father God, it's through the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Big words for a man, but he wasn't a man in alone. He was God, the Son of God. Thirdly, Jesus points to the importance of focus. Focus achieves everything, particularly focus on God. But he's very practical. He also says at the end of the passage, you know, if you're in a state of worry, then sometimes you have to take it a stage at a time or a day at a time. So again, no pat, easy solutions. Take it at the pace that you can manage. But focus not on your worries, but rather on God. Proverbs 4 and verse 25 says this, let your eyes look straight ahead, fix your gaze directly before you, make level paths for your feet, and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Now, I don't know you, but I'm a natural swerver. I can remember um, a number of years ago when my wife won a prize for me to go to Knock Hill Race Circuit, um, that I was really looking forward to be taken through the paces on the main racetrack, and then the skid pan, and then the rally course. And um, I was a bit disappointed with the initial part of the day, because it was all about safety this and safety that. And then the instructors were being very measured in the way that they were controlling, well, probably me personally, in, in, in the use of the car. So when I got to the skid pan, I was, I was a bit pumped up and ready to go. Now, the idea in a skid pan is that you learn how to swerve into the elements so that you straighten the carve up as it starts to, to spin. Um, but sadly, uh, I, I decided that it would be more enjoyable to uh, focus on something else, and therefore, I managed the feat of spinning the car not just 10 or 12 times, but more than that, 16 times, which was a record at Knock Hill. So... <laughs> I was given a, a, a yellow card and uh, learned that actually that wasn't actually going to advance me. My focus was, if you like, on the wrong thing. Nothing I learned that day advanced my cause as a safe driver on the Knock Hill circuit. In fact, I think they were very glad to see the back of me. I was focusing on the wrong things, if you like, having a good time, um, rather than actually trying to learn from the instructor. Our instructor in our life the perfect instructor is our Father God. And therefore, if we are worrying, we need to focus in on Him and connect with Him. So that's the first passage on the issue, if you like, of anxious worry. The second passage is rather different. It's a passage written to folk who are in desperate straits. They're completely weighed down. They're physically exhausted. They're played out. They have nothing more to give. They are depressed. And it's a different message that's given by Jesus to these folk from the passage that we read in Matthew 6. You may be well sitting there, 
with some form of condition in your mind or in your body which equates to uh, depression. And you may be thinking, well, what do you know about my situation? What right have you got to stand there and to preach to me about something which you do not really understand in its application to me? Well, you're right to answer that question, completely right. And you're also right to assume that I, as a man, do not have the answers, but I have the Spirit of God in my, in my heart and in my mind, and I have the Bible here, which provides me with direction. And I also have some experience of what it's like in personal terms to face depression. Some of you, not all of you, will know that um, I have four children, and the youngest of whom is uh, a boy, James, who is currently now 11 years old. James was, is our fourth um, child, and um, for the first 18 months to two years of his life, he developed completely normally. And then suddenly, around about that time, he went into a complete meltdown. His, uh, his behavior became odd. He was no longer able to focus in on anyone. His language evaporated, and he became uh, as if a, a little addict hooked on drugs. He was completely in another world. If you clapped your hands in front of his face, he wouldn't blink or react. But if he went into a church uh, room where there was a PA humming in the background, as we can hear here, he would scream with pain. We went to the doctors and were told, within a very short period of time, that there was absolutely nothing that we could do for James. He would almost certainly be institutionalized. He would never have any quality of life or ability to communicate with people, let alone his family. And when that message was given to my wife and myself, I experienced what I believe to be a form of depression. My sister had clinical depression, and she described something to me which was very similar, and that was that I would wake up at particular points in the night and feel that I was in a black hole, and would feel that there was absolutely nothing there that I could make sense of, and that I was scrabbling around in my half-awakeness for meaning and sense of what, what I was feeling and what I was seeing. And then, when, I, when it became clearer to me uh, that I was, you know, awake and I had this issue, then spilling into my mind about James, I felt this all-consuming sense of hopelessness. I felt an inability to do anything. I felt an inability to see anything, and I couldn't see God. And it took an enormous effort by myself, and also very much with the help of my wife, to move on from that situation and to do something which would help us and our family, as well as help James. And I share that with you simply not because I wish to give any credentials or qualifications to what I'm saying, but simply to say, if I've experienced that, then I'm sure there are many other people here in this room who have had some experience of extreme despair or depression, and will therefore be able to identify with you if you're sitting here and thinking that you're all alone. You're not alone. This is something that affects many, many people, and you're not alone because you have a Father God who knows you and wants to help you. And Jesus, as God became man, said in this passage a couple of important things which we can take hold of just now if we're in that situation 
uh, of despair, extreme despair and, and challenge. Jesus was speaking here to a couple of different groups or backgrounds. He was speaking to the Greeks who had spent a long time hunting for the truth, the meaning of life. They would debate it. They would search for it. They would you know, go to the ends of their, their countries to find answers. And a lot of them were completely played out because they'd come to a conclusion there is no truth. There is no meaning. Everything is pointless. And the other group he was speaking to were the Orthodox Jews, who uh, themselves, their leaders, and also those who are part of that group, were weighed down with a regime of rules and regulations. Do this, don't do that. They were played out. They were exhausted with trying to do things that would achieve sanctification, relationship, connection with God. And what basically Jesus is saying here is, if you are in that category, you're weary and you're exhausted, if you're in that category, come to me and I, big words for a man, but bear in mind this was the Son of God, I will give you rest. And rest in this sense here means answers, perspective, the meaning, the, the ability for you to move on. There was a very uh, good book written, uh, written recently by a journalist who took time to travel around America and to speak to all the, the men still living who had uh, walked on the moon. I'm quite fascinated with uh, the whole business of the Apollo missions, and I'm sure many of us here have been inspired by the brilliance of how very basic computers and functional machinery managed to cross all these miles into space to uh, that, that, that satellite. But the interesting thing was when he, uh, this journalist spoke to all the various guys who had stood on the moon, he got, he got two reactions, but they had a parallel meaning. The first reaction was that certain guys were very conscious of the position of the humanity of themselves with a divinity that was evident from the, uh, the hugeness of space. That was the first reaction. And I'd, I'd kind of picked that up before by the people that had traveled around the moon but had not actually landed on it, Jim Lovell and others. But what was also interesting for those who had not actually had a, an experience with God in that sense but had still uh, achieved a perspective from standing on the moon was the fact that they didn't look at the moon and they didn't look at themselves. They looked back at the earth and they looked at the color, and they looked at the fragility, and it changed them. Every person that got that perspective, they didn't go back to earth and live the same life. Some were very destabilized and found it impossible to get into any type of work or rhythm or career. Others completely changed direction, but that perspective changed them. And Jesus is offering here a perspective on the exhaustion of despair that changed the people who listened to him, and it can change you, and it can change me this evening. Secondly, Jesus talks about yokes. Now, when we think about yokes, we generally think about bacon and eggs, etc. So, we're not quite in the same society, but the yoke was something that sat on the back of, of cattle in order to provide them with control and direction. And in this scenario here, um, the, the translation of the word easy, again, could be confusing because what it means here is well-fitting or made to measure. 
So we have a made-to-measure yoke, not quite as attractive as Next or, or Slater's or whatever for suits. But Jesus is saying here that we have something which is divine, which is from God, from our Father, which is made to measure for us, not to weigh us down, but to give us direction, to give us control, to give us the ability to fulfill our dreams, to exploit our abilities, our skills, and to do amazing things. Did you know that God wants you to do amazing things with your life? That He wants you to change the world. It may be one person at a time. It may be one step at a time. But God, your Father, believes that you can do it in Him and through Him. That's fantastic. And, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes we can look at this and say, well, actually, I don't want that yoke. I remember a number of years ago, actually a long time ago, when I was at school uh, in sixth year, it was the school sports. And in these days, our sports were run not in blaze or these fancy tracks, but in good old-fashioned grass. Um, And some of the grass actually was more akin to what you would find on a rugby pitch as opposed to a smart athletic stadium. Um, it came to the day of the school sports that I was taking a part in, and frankly, I wasn't the fastest runner. I was a good runner, but there were two or three other guys in my year who were uh, faster and more athletic. Um, and on the day before the, uh, the, the race was due to take place, my father said to me, you look, Ken, I've been thinking about this. It's going to be pretty wet today and tomorrow. Why don't you borrow my old Uh, running shoes. And I thought, well, okay, Dad, let's have a look at them. And my father produced these running shoes from his his wardrobe, which were, frankly, they were horrendous. They were like, imagine black ballet shoes with large spikes. You know, not cool, particularly when worn with white socks, white shorts, and a white singlet. So, I really wasn't sure if I wanted this particular uh, yoke, if you like, in terms of uh, running the races. And when I, I, but I, I decided to take his advice. And when I pitched up on the day, and we were putting on these shoes in the, uh, in the changing room, I was getting a lot of verbals, a lot of, well, a lot of teasing and abuse. But hey, at the end of the 100 meters and the 200 meters, the uh, joke was on the other side because a couple of the guys who were more able slipped and were unable to cope with the conditions. And on that particular day, my father's running shoes did the trick. If God's given you something which you think actually doesn't fit with how you perceive your abilities, then think again. Maybe God has a bigger idea of what you can achieve if you're given the inspiration We don't have running shoes or a yoke. We have the Holy Spirit inside us. Do not underestimate what God can do with you if you take that Spirit into every facet of your life day by day. It will help you to make an eternal difference. The the, the third thing here that comes across is the comment about uh, not just the yoke being easy, but the burden is light. And at first, at first blush, that seems a little trite. Is Jesus saying to these people who are clearly completely played out and in despair, you've got nothing to worry about? Huh, that's not a big deal. You're making a fuss about nothing. Is that the message? That would be rather unthinking and even uh, lacking in, in empathy and care. 
That's not the meaning. The meaning is more demonstrated by the, the story of um, the young boy who is carrying his yet younger brother who is lame, and he's carrying him for a considerable distance. And then an older man comes along and says to him, you know, what are you doing? Is that not an awful heavy burden for a small boy like you to carry? And the boy's answer is, that's no burden. That's my brother. It's a perspective. It's still a big deal. But when we attack the challenges of our life in the knowledge that we have a God that's big and bigger still than the challenges that we're facing, then we can carry that difficulty in an entirely different way. Or if you like, it builds up our spiritual muscle. Read James chapter 1, and you'll see that God doesn't visit and honest the, the trials and the depression and the difficulties. That's not from God. That's part of the world that we're in. That's Satan. But God uses these situations to build up our spiritual muscle, our ability to take hold of that facet of God in us, which allows us to change the world. Jesus was saying to these people, you're played out, but if you approach this situation with God your Father in the forefront, taking on what He's given you to fulfill your abilities and your uh, challenges in life, then you'll carry these difficulties and you'll achieve much, much more. You will do anything and everything through me and in me. And we can see that if we look at some of the examples from the Old Testament. When we look at the Old Testament, we see prophets and individuals who achieved amazing things, but you have to read in between the achievements to see that these folk also experienced challenge. They appreciated the downs of life. They experienced depression. And therefore, just to demonstrate, here are a couple of examples which I picked out from the Old Testament. But if you've got time to look at your Bibles next week, hunt around and you'll find many more. Let's take Elijah, for example. If you look in 1 Kings in chapters 18 and 19, you read a story about Elijah really kicking ass. He's in a situation where he's being challenged by the prophets and the, uh, the leaders who are saying that Baal is the true God. And he has a contest and said, okay, let's build, let's build some um, uh, altars here and let's see whether your God will come down and do something or whether holy God, my God, will do something. And he completely wipes them out. God visits it down with fire and everything is taken out. And it's an amazing experience. And you would have thought after that, whoa, he must feel on top of the world. He must feel he can achieve anything and everything. What a superman. And yet, in the following chapter, when there's a lashback, we see Elijah in a completely different place. Let me just read you briefly uh, a section from 1 Kings and chapter 19. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Sounds to me like despair or even depression. He was completely played out. What did he do, and what can we learn from his experience? Well, what he did initially was he looked after himself. He cared for his physical needs. He slept, and then he took food, and then 
he sought God and decided where he was going to go from there. And sometimes it's as obvious when we're in despair for us to stop and think, are we actually looking after ourselves? We've been given this body from God to serve Him and also have life in its fullness. Are we actually doing what we need so that that body can function? So sometimes when you're in despair, you have to do the very basic thing. Take some time to rest. Take some time to eat properly and take exercise and get a perspective. We think about David and uh, you know, all these wonderful psalms that um, he, uh, he's written and we read of. But, you know, some of these psalms are an interesting mix of praise to God and complete despair. I asked someone in our cell group just on Wednesday, who would he point to in the Old Testament as a, a, an example of someone in complete despair and even depression? And interestingly enough, the individual said, he said David. If you look at Psalm 22, look at, look at what David says here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. We can learn an important lesson from David, and the lesson is simply this, that when we call on God with honesty and with reverence, and we remember what God has done in the past for us and for others around us, then even if we can't see God right now, right then in that situation like David, we can still take the inspiration and the energy to take the next step. That applies to David, and it applies to you and to me. Thirdly, we have the example of Job. Job was someone greatly loved by God. And in Job, the book of Job, we read about uh, God and, and Satan in discourse when essentially it's agreed that Satan can throw everything he likes at Job in the belief that God had that Job would still remain faithful to him. So, Job's possessions, his family, his health are all absolutely hammered. And then, over and above that, he talks to some lawyers. Never a good idea. He speaks to three so-called friends who are intellectually able and gifted and absolutely no use whatsoever. And rather than helping him, they actually weigh him down. And it gets to the point where Job realized that there is no reason other than that God is God is God. And in chapter 40, it's written that Job reached the point where he closed his mouth. He no longer sought to um, rationalize it. He said, it's simple as this, I believe in you, Father God. And that from that point on, Job had won. By actually simply saying nothing and doing nothing in human or intellectual or smart terms, but simply recognizing the divinity uh, of Father God, he won. And from that point on, he was blessed. Read the end of the book, and you'll see that God blessed him far more than he had in the first instance. He won by simply getting a perspective, and also, most importantly of all, not listening to the, the, the wrong people. Stop listening to folk 
who are weighing you down. If you're in a situation of anxiety, let alone depression, be very careful of folk who come to you with trite answers, even if they are professing to be Christians or friends. Be careful to take what's right for you and to test it against Scripture. Look for wise counsel, particularly at a time when you're under pressure. So, suggested actions. These are not pat answers that will apply in every instance, but suggested actions that you and I can take to deal with situations where we're challenged with despair or even depression. Point one, or suggestion one, look after yourself physically and spiritually. Proverbs 17 says this, verse 22, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Secondly, look to yourself and then look to God with honesty and persistency. Proverbs 3 and verse 6, for the Lord God gives wisdom, and from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Look after yourself, look to God, and then thirdly, look to the right people for perspective. Proverbs 12 and verse 18, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You want folk around you who will heal you and nurse your wounds and move you on to a point where you can then take hold of God's promises for your life. Look after yourself. Look to God. Look to the right people, the right friends, the right counselors, and then finally, look and look and look again for God to reveal His answers to you. Read Hebrews chapter 10, and you'll see men of faith and women of faith who looked and looked and looked, in many instances for years and years, through times of difficulty and oppression. That's not my prayer for you. It's certainly not my prayer for me. But sometimes we're called to a life of faith which involves persistency and perseverance and really thinking smart and taking hold of all that God has given to us in the, in the guise of the Holy Spirit and all that He's given to us in terms of truth of Scripture. My last example is of Jesus Himself. Does Jesus understand what it feels like to be in complete despair? Well, you only have to look at the experience that Jesus had when on that cross He died for you and for me. He knew it was coming. He could have spent His life worrying about it. He could have completely caught himself up in anxiety and inaction, and yet he didn't. And when it came, it was no cakewalk. It was a horrible physical death, but more than that, it was a huge divine sacrifice to bring God, our Father, into relationship with us, His children. Absolutely amazing and in the same way as the astronauts on the moon looked back on the earth and couldn't grasp it, I can't grasp that, and I challenge you to grasp it fully because we are not God. It was a massive sacrifice. And we read in, 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 the, in the passage in Matthew um, about the crucifixion that a point came where Jesus cried out. He cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's abundantly clear that at that point in time, Jesus, in His humanity, could not see God. At the 
most critical time for him to receive the support and love and care of his father, he couldn't see anything, and he cried out in pain. He understands. If you're here this evening and you can't see God, you can't see any purpose in your life, all you can see is the black hole experience that I described earlier, then realize this, that Jesus knows how that feels. And He loves you, and He wants to take you out of that black hole. And more than that, He wants you to give a life of purpose and fullness and abundance, because that's your destiny. This, uh, just last week, I was walking with uh, a friend of mine um, who we find difficult to connect up with each other because of our respective jobs, and we decided the only way we could achieve that would be to go away for a, for a, for a day and walk a few hills. So we went up to, uh, to Gearlock, and um, Graham, my friend, had planned for us to do a number of hikes, and the hike that we did on the, the Monday morning was to an area called the Fairy Locks. That's uh, fairies as in Peter Pan, etc. And it sounds rather twee, and I wasn't particularly enticed by it, but I thought, well, fair enough, not quite as challenging as the sort of thing I would normally do, but okay, Graham, we'll go for your fairy locks. So um, off we trudged, and uh, we duly found after an hour or two these three, on the face of it, quite pretty locks, uh, sitting up in the hills to the, the south of, of Gearlock. And then I noticed that, that in the locks there was um, bits and pieces of um, machinery, aluminium, and realized it was from an aircraft that had crashed. So um, we, we hunted around, and we found at the side of the lock in question a memorial to 15 Americans uh, who had died in 1945. These people were being liberated from uh, fighting uh, in Europe, and they essentially had taken a, a course uh, to the States which took them over the, the north of Scotland. Um, and at that particular point uh, in time, they were no doubt absolutely delighted after uh, the challenges of war to be going home. They thought that they were uh, going back to safety and to life in its fullness. And what happened is a little open to debate because there's not a full record of um, the last um, uh, hour or so of the flight of the plane. But in, in, in essence, a point obviously was reached where there was mechanical failure. And the pilot, being completely blind without any direction by radio or by way of knowledge of the area, looked for somewhere to take the plane down. And those who are aviators will know that the safest way of bringing a plane down is to bring it on water as opposed to on land, because you stand a better chance then of skidding along as opposed to tumbling. And um, this particular uh, pilot must have picked out the fairy locks and seen them and thought, that's where I'll come down. But sadly, the, the, the smallness of the locks, they were only about 100 yards across, meant that there wasn't enough space for the plane to land safely. And clearly what happened was it careered across and smashed into the side of the hillside. And you could still see the twisted aluminium from the propellers and also the fuselage next to where there is this memorial to the names of the young men and one woman who died on that particular night in 1945. And I thought, you know, so often we can feel safe and secure. We can have been in a battle in our lives and think, oh, 
We've made it. We now know our way out. We're on the plane which is driven by our humanity and our understanding. But then suddenly, we found that actually rather being in the safest place and taking the decision to go down through the best knowledge of our humanity, in this case the pilot, to go down and to land and to escape the, the challenges of the aircraft failure, we think that we've done all we can. But it wasn't enough. And these people died at a young age. Some of you may feel tonight that you're in a safe place. Or some of you may feel quite the opposite, that you're in the most insecure and difficult and challenging time of your life. You're in the black hole. Can I say to you both, you're in the same place unless you have the Lord Jesus in your life, because He and He alone is the answer. So, whether you're here tonight brimming with confidence in your ability to live your life to the full and to achieve everything without a hint of anxiety, worry, depression, or despair, or whether you are completely sunk and submerged in the challenges of your life right now, there is only one answer. There is only one complete and true sanctuary, and that is by accepting the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, the only way, the only truth, and the only life, the only way of connecting with God, divine God, as Abba Father. I hope that what I've said will be of assistance to you. Can I just emphasize again that I've tried very hard not to be trite or to be um, oversimplistic. This is a very complex area. But notwithstanding that, Jesus is able to provide the answers that you need. And it's appropriate that we just give a bit of space right now for Jesus to speak to you in this meeting. So, what we're going to do is we're going to bow our heads, and I'm going to pray a prayer. And if this prayer sounds right to you, and it describes either a whole or a part of your situation, then I would invite you to pray this prayer, not audibly, but under your breath, and if my words don't sound quite right for you, then you change them. You speak to your God and your Father. You tell Him as it is, with honesty and with clarity, but with reverence and the knowledge that He is holy God. And you wait for Him to answer to you. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank You that through the, the life of the Lord Jesus, your Son, God became man, you understand us. And even if we feel right now this evening that nobody here is for us, nobody understands, nobody is able to help, help us, each one of us, to appreciate that you are there, that you understand, and you are more than able to help and assist us and take us forward. And if this prayer is right for you, you pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to this earth to be my Savior, that you are my God. Thank you for the fact that you chose to die on the cross for me personally. I acknowledge that that's the only way that I can have a relationship with God as my 
Father, Abba. Thank you that right now as I pray this to you, as I cry out to you, even if I don't understand the words or what's happening, I know that you will answer, that you will come into my life, that you will become a part of me through the work of the Holy Spirit, and that you will change me. Thank you that right now I can make an incredible difference to my life, to this world, because of what you've done, Lord Jesus, and because what you can do, Holy Spirit of God, in me and through me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And just if you can keep your heads bowed just now to give a bit of space for those who maybe want to say something a bit different for themselves. If you prayed that prayer, then I would invite you just to show that to me and to a couple of other people who are in this room so that we have the opportunity to pray for you. We don't want to embarrass you or make you feel awkward. But this is an opportunity for you to do business with God, to do business with Jesus, to do business with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, if you prayed that prayer and you want to just acknowledge that this evening, then slip your hand up just now and then put it down again. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the person that has responded. And we thank you as well that you are here for us in our difficulty, in our worries, in our anxieties, in our depressions, that you understand and that you care for us. Thank you, Father God. Amen.